Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Whether it's robots taking our jobs, algorithms directing our actions, or social media choosing our president, we're fast becoming aware of how our technological and economic advancements are becoming untethered from our individual and collective human interests. This is where we change the script, rewrite the codes, and envision a society built for and by real people. Playing for Team Human today, playwright, director, teacher, Jessica Blank. The central mechanism of narrative is empathy, right? Like if we go see a play or watch a movie or read a novel and we have not walked in the protagonist's shoes, we haven't had a good night at the theater or it was a bad movie. Jessica will be arguing for the power of story to change the world. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I keep wondering whether the nationalist, xenophobic, inward-turned America we've been projecting to the world lately is the real us, the real U.S. Have we been hiding the real America from the world all this time that we've been presenting ourselves as the proponents of global collaboration and harmony? Or have we simply been hiding the internationalist, globalist America from ourselves until now? Let me explain. Since, uh, since World War II, or even really since the conclusion of World War I even, America has had a vested interest in promoting a certain global order. It was Woodrow Wilson who ran on a peace platform, ended up bringing America into World War I. And when it was done, he established this thing called the League of Nations, which was meant to keep the peace. 
And thanks to an isolationist Congress, the United States never actually joined its own League of Nations. That should have been a big hint. Then, during World War II, Roosevelt took a shot at it with his declaration by United Nations, which eventually became the UN and was dedicated, as we all know, to international peace and basic human rights around the world. Maybe to Americans, the UN was thought of more as a way to prevent having to go to war for Europe or anyone else ever again. And yes, it was in New York, and yes, it was conceived and spearheaded by Americans, but this didn't mean that America really thought of itself as part of some great international community. That was surprising to me to learn. I grew up in the 1970s, really, at the height of America's cultural outreach to Europe and the world. And I remember all the great Russian artists and ballet dancers would come to New York and try to show us how great the Soviet Union was. And our artists and writers would go to Europe. And there were exchange students in my high school from Italy and France and Germany. And the world out there, you know, the European world, it seemed more artistic, cultural, and tolerant than what I knew. It seemed a bit like this kind of international world was the future. And this was by design. Once Russia and the U.S. divided Europe into an East and a West and the Cold War began, America went on this big propaganda effort to present itself as more enlightened and free than the communists. The State Department, the CIA, and something called the U.S. Information Agency, as well as a whole bunch of foundations like the Rockefellers and the Fulbrights, you know, the Fulbright Scholar for International Studies, they were all dedicated to painting a positive picture of America abroad. You know, it was this was big, big money behind this. The USIA alone spent over $2 billion of public money a year on their newsreels and radio broadcasts, Radio Marti to Cuba, journalism, international appearances by intellectuals and all sorts of exhibitions. And the problem was that the image of America that the agencies projected to the world wasn't the image many Americans had of themselves. We were busy trying to make ourselves look like this open and free society, as sophisticated and cosmopolitan as any European city. So we sent abstract art and films and book collections with modernist novels and intellectual speakers and people of color and modern dancers and all sorts of avant-garde culture. And many more conservative Americans, as well as the senators who, uh, who they voted for, they saw this stuff as gay and communist and Jewish and urban and effete and an altogether terrible misrepresentation of who we are and what we stand for. Why should we be spending upwards of $2 billion a year exporting this decadent, self-indulgent art and culture to the world? So Congress, because they thought there was still a national security advantage or at least some good business rationale for maintaining this uh, uh, American global outreach, they passed something called the Smith-Munt Act in around 1947-48. And the law made it illegal for the U.S. Information Agency to release any of its propaganda within the United States. 
So ostensibly, this is to protect Americans from potentially manipulative propaganda. You know, information is really a form of psyops or psychological operations, and we're not going to use such weapons on our own people. But the real reason for the Smith-Munt Act, at least as I've researched it, it was to prevent Americans from seeing themselves represented in ways they didn't agree with. The books and the traveling library were titles that many Americans thought would be better burned than celebrated. And the overall ethos of the program, which was to promote America's internationalism and free society, they were in direct contradiction to the values that many Americans held. So the Smith-Munt Act, it created this wall between the America we exported to the world and the one we maintained about ourselves. By the time the internet emerged, this division became really hard to maintain. You've got like YouTube and the Internet Archive and Facebook. They bring everything to everybody. So in 2012, the Smith-Munt Act was repealed. And as always, concerned netizens saw a conspiracy. Did this mean the government would now be free to use its psychological warfare on U.S. citizens? Maybe. But the real intent here was to simply relieve the government's communications agencies from trying to hide everything they broadcast in an age when hiding that kind of information is just impossible. But I wonder now, was the Smithmont Act really hiding the real internationalist and open-minded America from the Americans who weren't ready for it yet? Or was it simply hiding the real nationalist and backwards-thinking America from the rest of the world? You know, for all our efforts and telling Europe otherwise, maybe we're not really the modern society that we self-styled proponents of public diplomacy like to think we are. After all, the measure of a civilization's advancement is just its capacity to insulate its people from the cruelty of nature. Civilizations see their poor as human beings, not as inferior by virtue of their poverty. Civilizations build roads, aqueducts, public transportation. They, they used to make baths and health care and education, and they put it all right into the fabric of society as givens. Instead of seeing the poor as deserving of discomfort, civilizations see all human beings as deserving of essential services. The higher the ground level, the better the public hospitals and the mass transit, the more advanced the civilization. And this particular understanding of modernity and enlightenment turns out it's not universal. Not to people who want to reach back in time for greatness anyway. Instead of breaking down the boundaries and building an international society with universal justice, America's stated goal right now, its stated goal is to reject globalism, build walls, and treat other nations as business competitors. The America we were hiding behind billion-dollar international culture campaigns is now the America we are broadcasting to the world. Instead of compensating for our American-made missiles with progressive art and media, we're justifying their sale and their use with America First rhetoric. America's only hope for cross-border connection and identification and intimacy, like what we were looking for in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, is its people. This means you and me sharing our beliefs, our aspirations, our culture, and our compassion with as much of the world as possible. Just as conservatives, 
fought against the export of an America they didn't agree with. It's the progressives' turn to speak out on behalf of the connected and collaborative world we still hope for, even if we aren't fit to be its leader anymore. I'm Fred Turner, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nora Bateson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Phil McKenzie, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sarah Lagesson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. You can join Team Human and support our effort to find the others and hear their stories and share their strategies for exercising human agency in the face of corporate, political, and technological control by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. I'm delighted to bring Jessica Blank to the Team Human community. As many of you know, I've been wrestling a lot lately with the pitfalls of traditional narrative structure and the way it seems to prefigure the sorts of solutions we humans can devise for our collective challenges. But Jessica's work may just help me see how to use story effectively and in a way that stimulates people to think and act in new ways. She and her husband, Eric, are probably most famous for their long-running play about wrongly accused death row inmates, Exonerated, which also became a successful movie. She also wrote the novel Almost Home, which she and Eric just turned into a feature film. And she teaches storytelling to people and organizations looking for ways of connecting human beings to their social justice missions. So many places to start. So for me, I first became, I guess, like many New Yorkers or people around the world, I became acquainted with your work when uh, uh, Rob Morrow invited me to see The Exonerated oh, when awesome. he was in it. And I go in there and see him and uh, Mia Farrow mm-hmm. and a bunch of great actors sitting on stools or chairs with music stands, Mm -hmm. doing what we, back in my theater days, we used to call a staged reading. But this actually wasn't a staged reading. It was, I don't even know what you call it. It was a reading, a sharing. Yeah, well, (laughs) it was directed in a staged reading style because the way the show was able to run so long is because we had, there are 10 roles in it, and I believe seven of them were set. And then three of them, we rotated actors, well-known actors, in and out of the roles. So the the actors that were part of the permanent cast were actually fully rehearsed yeah. and off book and all of that stuff. But we had the music stands there so that if somebody could only come in for a week, they wouldn't be too terrified. Right. And they get to read. I yeah. mean, it changed the audience's relationship to it as a piece of theater. Hmm. So now instead of watching actors acting and walking around some box set, you know, and having scenes, it was almost a purer form of storytelling. Yes. 
that then conveyed a real deep sense of purpose. Yes, definitely. Well, and when Eric and I were first writing the show, the very first production of it that we did before it came to New York was at the Actors Gang Theater in L.A., which is Tim Robbins Theater. Uh They're an old punk rock, Commedia dell'arte theater. They're wonderful. And Tim had done an early reading of the show in New York when it was still very much a work in progress. And those early readings had gone really well, and we had producers on board who were raising money for the full run, and then 9-11 happened. Mm. And there was a moment when, you know, everybody in New York was paralyzed, and literally people were asking, like, are we ever going to do theater again, right? Let alone a piece that was, like, really, you know, part of its message was... Mm, the system doesn't quite work the way you think it does, and authority figures are not necessarily going to protect us. And actually, we need to be looking out about that. Like, that that message was not something people were very receptive to. And so we had this sort of moment with the show where we didn't know what was going to happen next. And, um, you know, and Eric and I, I mean, I must have been 24 or 25, and Eric was like 29. Like, we were kids when we did that play. And... We were in our little tiny apartment in the East Village, and our landline rang. And we answered the phone, and on the other end of the phone, this is a guy says, Hi, this is Tim Robbins. We're like, What? (laughs) Tim Robbins? Why are you calling it us us at our house? And he said, What's happening with the exonerated? I have this theater in LA. Do you guys want to come out and do it? And we basically, he kept the play alive by because at that particular moment. And then, you know, by the time that production was over, we came back and we did it in New York and Bob Balaban directed it here. But that early production, we experimented with some staging, right? It was still based in first person, direct address to audience, but we had more blocking. We had more sort of things playing out on stage. It was, I wouldn't say it was naturalistic, but it had a little, little tastes of naturalism in it. And we really found that it was too much for the show because the stories themselves are so powerful. And the way we work with our documentary theater work, we're sort of trying to find the openings where there's a possibility for empathy with people that the audience wouldn't ordinarily empathize with. And to sort of then really get in there and open it up, which creates a very intense emotional experience for the audience. And so anything theatrical kind of felt like it was like getting in the way of that Mm. or layered on top of it. And so all of our documentary work exonerated first. And then we did another play in 2008. We went to Jordan to interview Iraqi civilian refugees and uh, created a play called Aftermath. And now we're at work on another play about the Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia. And all, all of those pieces have the same very minimalist aesthetic. Aftermath was, it was not, you know, there were no music stands. We didn't use the stage reading format. But the blocking was incredibly simple and very minimalist. And I think um, the Upper Big Branch play will be quite similar. We're heading into a workshop of that now. I mean, for people who don't know, I mean, Exonerated was a play about uh, death row inmates who were ultimately exonerated of their crimes for which they were sentenced to death, um, but exonerated of their crimes because they didn't actually do them. Take away your name. They, They give you a number. So 
Basically, it's like taking who you are from you. So then after I've been on death row for 22 years, they find this DNA evidence, you know, and the prosecution says this will be the final nail in Carrie Max Cook's coffin. <laughs> because <laughs> evidence came out or the witnesses said, actually, that wasn't the person or the DNA stuff. And uh, it's it's the stories of these people that, you know, I guess, you know, when you're watching it, because, you know, the name that most of these people are going to get out right. somehow eventually. But yeah. you're sort of hearing the story of the of the two or 20 or 50 years mm-hmm. until they get out of jail for the thing that they didn't do, basically. I mean, because they're black. <laughs> right. Well, cases. half of them. <laughs> you know? Half of them. And then, right. I mean, I think actually the bottom line that we found, because we order, we interviewed about 40 people on the phone mm. and then went to talk to about 20 of them in person and the play follows six stories. Mm. And the people that we talked about or that we spoke to were different in all kinds of different mm-hmm. ways. They were from all walks of life. They were all ethnicities, all religious backgrounds, all political background, like Every demographic you could look at was different, except for one thing. The one thing that every single one of them had in common was that they could not afford an attorney who could match the resources of the prosecution. They were all poor or like barely middle class. And, money talks. And that, in the yeah, legal I mean, system. and that's that's one thing that I think we really don't understand about our justice system because the way it's laid out in the Constitution, you know, the idea. And if you haven't had any contact with the justice system, you tend to just think it works this way. Um, is that both sides get to present a narrative, right, and um, that is grounded in facts and the stronger narrative that is grounded in more of a factual reality is judged dispassionately and wins, right? That's the idea. But in a capital case, the prosecution usually has upwards of half a million dollars, sometimes up to a million dollars to to fight their case. And that goes to, you know, reinvestigating witnesses and calling expert witnesses, hiring expert witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. And in most of these cases, you're talking about somebody being defended by a public defender who's paid maybe $15,000. Right. So you're not getting a grant not, from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Yeah. To, it's just yeah. not an equal playing field in any way. Right. So in this play... I mean, I, I always think about it in kind of, although it's not, I, I originally thought about it in Brechtian terms, that Brecht's whole idea of theater was he didn't want people to go to theater and have so much catharsis that they don't do anything in the real world. Uh-huh. And so he came up with all these sort of alienating devices and things, which for my money end up being even more theatrical than theater. <laughs> yes. New framing <laughs> and singing. At that, I mean, it's a yeah. fun, crazy time. <laughs> um, it's anything but dispassionate. It's right. just meta or something. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's cool. But you know, you walk into this and because the this, I don't even want to call it a, uh, because the, I was going to call it a style of theater, but because this kind of theater mm-hmm. is, is, is not simply anti-theatrical, but is, it's almost transparent. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching Mia Farrow relate to this person's story mm-hmm. or or you're watching the actor in real time process the story in front of you. Yes, yes. Which absolutely. is empathic on so many levels. Yeah. I'm, now I have empathy for the human being in the room <laughs> right. contending with this my God, the script. This yeah. guy talking about 30 years later and I still love you, honey, and oh yeah. my God, and you're how do you play that? And then how do you be that? Yeah. Be that person. So you end up creating these layers of, upon layers of empathy in a pure, open 
way. And I'm guessing that was the intent because then it ends up, it led to the exoneration of a lot of people. Well, the play it, itself. It, it led to, what it led to on the policy level was, um, I mean, it was, it, it became part of the conversation about wrongful conviction and the death penalty. It was so funny when Eric usually comes up with um, the titles for, he's much better titles than I am. And when we were writing Exonerated, he came up with the title of the Exonerated. And this just goes to show sort of how early it was. Like, I was like, that's a stupid title. Nobody's going to know what that word means. Like, no, I was like, that's this weird jargony term that like people, right? And now everybody knows what it means, right? right? So we sort of hit the conversation and became part of the national conversation around this issue as people were becoming aware of it. And the other thing that was happening, actually, one of the things that was causing that awareness was Governor George Ryan of Illinois, had, who's a pro-death penalty Republican, had declared a moratorium on executions in Illinois because of the wrongful conviction epidemic in that state. And that was sort of playing out as the play was being developed and running. And so by the time the play was up in, and running in New York City, Governor Ryan was leaving office and both of the candidates running to replace him had said that they were going to lift the moratorium on executions if they were elected. Mm. And so he was left in this situation where because he had, you know, appointed a blue ribbon commission and reinvestigated all of these cases. And he there was all of this information he had about potential wrongful convictions and the machine was going to start back up. And so he announced publicly that he was considering commuting the sentences of everyone on death row in Illinois to life in prison before he left office. And there was a big brouhaha about that, and it became this controversial thing. And the play was invited to be performed for him as part of his decision-making process. Mm. And um, and he it was a very intense night. There were over 50 exonerated death row inmates in the audience, and Governor Ryan and several members of the Illinois state legislature which Obama was actually an Illinois state senator at the time. I've never found out if he was there. He may have been. And anyway, Governor Ryan did decide to commute the sentences of everyone on death row before he left office and has said that the play was a factor in his decision. So it didn't lead directly to any exonerations, but it was part of a decision, a very courageous decision that he made to at least spare those people's lives and give their cases time to be relitigated. And it changed the public perception of... You know, the certainty of death row and all that. I mean, particularly after OJ and people were, you know, especially white America is like, oh, my God, look how DNA is being used to get murderers off and all that. You Now you see this sort of the other side of that. And all of a sudden, I mean, I started to feel like death row inmates sometimes get killed because... It's been 20 years already that they've been on death row. If we admit we're wrong now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It becomes about saving face for the prosecutors yeah. who are very often elected officials, right? And they have to run campaigns and it becomes, a, you know, a mark on their resume if they've had a wrongful conviction. There's no positive um, incentive for a prosecutor to come forward at any point in the process and say, we've got the wrong person. Other than being a human being. Other than being a human being. But from a career (laughs) standpoint, they will be actually punished. And that's one of the many, many systemic changes that could happen that would minimize the risk of wrongful conviction. Like if you actually made it so that you could get in trouble for prosecuting the wrong person, (laughs) Right. right, as a prosecutor, or that that was not something to be respected from a career standpoint. Right. Or that it was to be respected to actually admit that you had been moving in the wrong direction and course correct, then I think we would see a lot less of these happening. 
Right. You have to serve one month for every year that right. your <laughs> convict has right. been wrongly, uh, right. wrongly serving. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> that would change things pretty fast. So in your work and in Aftermath and Almost Home and even, even Liberty City, mm-hmm. um, do you start with like an issue that's upsetting you that you want to then derive, uh, uh, change the conversation or, or uh, uh, exploit some tactical empathy <laughs> on behalf of the aggrieved? Or do you look for, uh, uh, do you look for issues? Do you look for, for things out there that uh, could be just used to evoke empathy? I guess I'm wondering, yeah. what do you, what are you, what's your, your impulse? That's a great question. I mean, I think we don't start with the issue. I will say that like after Exonerated happened, we had actually a lot of different people approach us and say, could you do something in the same format about this subject or that subject? And we said no to all of those, even though they were very important subjects that all deserve documentary plays. And often we would point them in the direction of a different writer or whatever. Because there are. I mean, there are issues, you know, spousal abuse, human slavery, it's it's everything. And and documentary theater is a particularly magical form or potentially magical form when it's done right in terms of the potential for empathic identification because something, it takes the immediacy of, well, let me start here. So I believe that the central mechanism of narrative is empathy, right? Like if we go see a play or watch a movie or read a novel and we have not walked in the protagonist's shoes, we haven't had a good night at the theater, right? Or it was a bad movie, right? So, and actually there's a a neuroscientist named Paul Zak who studies mm-hmm. impactful narratives and the neuroscience of impact and narrative, which is actually a very tricky thing to study because most neuroscience studies are done in MRIs, right? And you can't put somebody in an MRI when they're watching a movie, right? right? So it's like a hard thing to measure. But he figured out that you could measure oxytocin and cortisol mm-hmm. in the blood. And he saw a correlation. He did, he ran experiments with watching, having people watch short social impact narratives, fictional scripted stories, um, and then testing whether they donated to something directly correlating to the issue afterwards, right? And what he found was that the narratives that actually create social change are the ones in which the blood levels of both oxytocin and cortisol are spiked the most, right? So it's not oxytocin by itself and it's not cortisol by itself. It's not it's, just empathy it's and not it's just not just stress. It's empathy and it's narrative tension, uh. right? So it's both. And the narrative tension piece, I think, comes from the, you know, the classic Joseph Campbell hero's journey structure, which I think is actually sort of the sacred geometry of story, right? Mm. In the same way that like, chords and music theory are a mathematical pre-existing thing that exists in music. I think that hero's journey story is actually pre-existing. Like, it's like octaves the, and... Yeah. And, We're wired to respond to things that are structured in that way. We are wired, once we identify with a protagonist, we're wired to go on the journey of watching them pursue a goal and face obstacles. And we we have cortisol spikes in our blood, right, in response to the tension around whether they're going to be able to overcome those obstacles and transform and reach their goal, right, or whether they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, be overtaken by danger along the way, right? So I think there's there's a basic process that we're working with with narrative. Then I also think that, I mean, I love all narrative forms. I'm a filmmaker. I write novels. I'm an actor, right? But 
there, I mean, I'm a theater geek at heart, right? Like, there's something totally magical about being in the same room with the pe- with the people who are embodying mm-hmm. the story, right? Like, there's some, I think, very primal, basic, human, direct emotional experience that comes from experiencing right. the narrative process in that form. And it's especially powerful today when we're having so much of that's happening on screens, through screens. Absolutely. That just being in a room with people, even if they weren't doing theater, would itself be Absolutely. overwhelming. Totally. And so then when you add the documentary piece to that, so that people are actually going through this empathic process in a room in this incredibly emotionally heightened and intimate setting, and they have the information that the stories that they're hearing are real, right? And that, you know, there's been some journalistic level of responsibility Mm -hmm. taken on the part of the playwrights, right? And that they can trust that this, I mean, we say at the beginning, we, because we take a little, a little creative license, not ever with content, but like, you know, we'll punch up a joke or something, right? Just to like, as playwrights, right? We don't ever change the facts, but we say we're very transparent, which is a great word, about, you know, 95% of what you're about to hear was actually said to us. Right. right? Well, and even if it's true, we're going to now juxtapose this story with that one. Right. Which changes the way you look at this first story. So you're, you'll you'll stack the deck a little Absolutely bit. Absolutely right. But, I mean, we're yeah. still operating as storytellers, yeah. but we are giving our audience the information that, you know, the vast majority of what you're about to hear, you're hearing it as we heard it in the room. Right. Right. Even if we're putting it in a narrative structure. Right. So... I think that documentary theater provides this incredible potentiality for creating social change because you can give people this experience, this very heightened emotional experience. And when they know that it's a real thing, they actually often walk out of the room feeling different about the issue or the subject than they did when they were walking right. than they were walking in. Right. So so I mean, I understand why so many people came to us and said, "Will you write about this issue?" But that is not where we start. I mean, it's so we're we work as artists, right? So all of our process, all of our projects, the process of developing them is somewhat organic. They occur to us and they strike us, and we get lots of ideas. Especially Eric has is he's a total idea guy. He has a million ideas all the time, right? So we are also paying attention, knowing that a project takes years to manifest to what ideas stick. So we have lots of ideas and we sort of sift through them and we see, you know, on an intuitive and emotional level, like which ones are sticking with us. But I will say that with the stuff that is connected to larger issues, with that piece of our work, I am always looking for the potential sites of empathic identification that could be transformative. I'm looking for the opening, right? Like, so, for example, with Exonerated, we made a very conscious... I mean, there are there are lots of people who are not guilty who are still on death row, right? Right, the play didn't solve it all. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and those stories are very, very important. Right. But we made a very conscious decision. Like, to me, all the politics are in your choice of protagonist because that's who you're asking your audience to empathize with, right? right? So... We knew that if we chose to talk to potentially innocent people who were still on death row, that we would lose the really conservative potential part of the audience who really said, well, but you can't prove that. That hasn't come out in the courts. Like, how do you know? Right. And it would just turn into an argument. But we knew also that if we talked to the people who were already out, that that we could sidestep that whole debate and just say, look, this happens whatever 
whatever side of the issue you're on, we can accept that that happens. So now let's go through understanding what makes this happen and what it does to a human being, right? Similarly with Aftermath, I mean, it was 2008. We all had Iraq fatigue, right? It was so overdetermined and we had heard so much about everything, but nobody had heard from the ordinary Iraqi civilians, who just lived in Baghdad mm-hmm. or wherever, Fallujah or wherever, right? So we went to Jordan and we sought out, I mean, we talked to pharmacists, we talked to like regular people. We were like, there is an opportunity here if we talk to ordinary people and find the most ordinary of ordinary people. That I mean, it's funny, like Eric grew up in the Midwest in Minnesota and he was really struck. He The first few days he was like, all of these people are like, my Midwestern, middle American relatives. So that was a potential site of, you know, you look at somebody who you really can identify in that ordinary person kind of way and then look at what is it like. Imagine if there was a war that just showed up above your head one day, right? I think, you know, the Upper Big Branch mine play is a real, which doesn't have a title yet. Eric Mm -hmm. needs to come up with one. Although actually we're, um, Steve Earle is writing original music for it. And I have a feeling that the title will probably come from one of his songs. That is another, you know, I mean, I feel like these are coal miners. We spoke to coal miners and former coal miners who are very, very easy for very conservative, white, working class Trump voters Mm -hmm. (laughs) to identify with. And these people have a story to tell about how a huge energy company created a situation that destroyed their lives. So again, that's another little opening. We're not, because we are really trying, even though we're working in the theater, so we might be, our mission might be doomed, but we are really trying not to just talk to lefties. Well, right. I know. I've talked to the uh, the coal miners uh, of the Midwest who, um, for three, four generations, they've been digging out the coal from under their ground to make a living. It's yeah. there. And now they're being told, wait a minute, you're not allowed to dig that coal out of the ground. Now you've got to be retrained and educated to make solar panels you don't understand for some company way out in the middle of nowhere that, you know, Al Gore is investing in. And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, you're making me become part of this global friggin' weird economy doing something I don't understand depending on some big corporation. Why aren't I allowed to just take this out of the ground? Yeah, well, and I will say also the folks that we met in West Virginia um, probably because we were in in, uh, on the Coal River Valley in quite a rural area. And I think most of the folks we spoke to would be totally pleased to be retrained to make solar panels. Like, they actually have mm. no other jobs at all. The closest town is like a ghost town. Like, there's not a restaurant to work at. You know, like, there there are no other jobs. And they also know that the coal is almost gone. So, you know, this sort of made-up conflict between coal miners and environmentalists Mm. that was very active in the 90s is like, that's not even a conversation anymore. They're like, we're not stupid. We know you're just trying to, you're cutting the tops off of mountains because the only coal that's left is deep, deep inside. Mm. And that's dangerous work. And you've destroyed our unions. Like, we're not thinking that the company, these companies are on our side. We just actually have to work and would like not to leave the land that our family has lived on for five generations. So when you when you talk about telling these people's stories or in 
gauging audiences through story is where my my resistance to theater comes up. I was a theater kid, uh-huh. you know, right through the whole thing. Summerstock acting, Artful uh-huh. Dodger. I got good Me Too stories. I got everything, uh-huh. right? I mean, right through grad school. And I'm at, I was at CalArts, and they're teaching us the Aristotelian, Sid Feld, you know, uh-huh. story structure, beginning, middle, end. And I all of a sudden, I start thinking, this is coercive. The mm. story with the beginning, middle, and end. I'm supposed to sit and watch this hero, usually some guy, uh-huh. make a series of choices. And it it the Aristotelian worldview that we're all going to be hoisted on our petard, that reality works like this, uh-huh. that my tragic flaw is going to inform the choice I make at the end. And even this sort of ends justifies the means journey up the inclined plane of tension until I have to accept whatever turning point the storyteller gives me in order to get out of tension. Mm-hmm. This is how how not just, you know, uh, uh, Marx and Stalin did it, but it's how Jesus did it. It's how every awful leader and organization and institution motivates its people to march, you know, into mm-hmm. into the worst stuff. And no, don't worry about, you know, you can use a narrative to your as you're a child to think about what college you're going to get into. Mm-hmm. And you get up to that and you're always disappointed wherever you go. And it was always a false dream. And uh-huh. <laughs> so I sort of wanted to push and Brecht sort of took me halfway there. Ibsen uh, with Doll's House took uh-huh. me there when he's like stops the play and Nora comes out and says I'm taking off my costume let's just talk uh-huh. I've not been a fair not been a full character in this play uh-huh. engage with me and I'm like yeah maybe maybe this this sort of what you're almost considering this sort of Pythagorean perfect shape narrative is itself somehow male and part of this last 2,000 years of patriarchal uh, hmm. sort of imposed story and that there's something else. I was hoping that 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 the female archetypes would come up with not Joseph Campbell's hero, but some kind of an opening, connected, uh, non-climactic journey. There is a writer, I'm forgetting her name right now, who has written about the heroine's journey, huh. um, which is has a spiral shape. So, which I think is great. So it's less strictly linear. Right. It still is a journey that is going, that is starting somewhere and winding up somewhere else, but it's not just a straight line, right? On the way there, it's like dipping in and out of learning the lesson, right? Which is, I think, more how transformation in life actually feels. I mean, so I will say, I think that we see, we see leaders doing terrible things using traditionally structured narrative not because the flaw is with traditionally structured narrative, but actually because, I mean, so I like Campbell better than Aristotle, uh-huh. right? So I do believe that we are actually wired to respond to that narrative form. The question of whether it resolves cleanly at the end, though, I think that is, that's a cultural piece. Like, I don't think that's part of what we're wired to respond huh. to, right? Like, I think, you know, we... We respond very strongly to even a two-hour movie, which has to have some kind of ending. We respond very strongly to two-hour movies that have open endings. So I don't think that the, like, 
resolution, tying it up in a bow piece of it. Like, I think that's an extra thing that like Hollywood or whatever. And they want it. And people feel they spent their 10, 20 bucks to see a movie, wrap up the damn thing. Maybe. But But, I mean, I think if you also look at look at what's happening with television, look at what's happening with serialized storytelling. I was actually just I am. I also am a coach and I teach story structure. Right. I have a course that I teach on character-based story structure that is long, and I just actually filmed this sort of like addendum piece of it that's yesterday that's about episodic storytelling that really gets at this very specific thing, right? Like there is a way that you can build story structure out of character if you are trying to resolve the story in two hours in a play or a movie or even in a novel, which is longer that would be longer than two hours, but it still wants to resolve at the end. What you're doing with episodic storytelling is you're building the structure so that the internal character conflicts are actually unresolvable. And that's what propels the story because the goal in episodic storytelling is to (laughs) to be able to tell many, 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 many stories. And I think actually what we're seeing is that episodic storytelling has become incredibly popular and the same balance of empathy and narrative tension is at work, right? Like we're still watching identifying with the protagonist, watching them to see if they're going to reach their goal and go on their journey and encounter obstacles. But that could continue infinitely and become more and more complex and situated in an ecosystem of characters, which is how television works. And people are hungry for that, too. So I think the, like, false resolution thing is a thing that, like, authoritarians and dumb Hollywood studio people, like, are putting on top of it. Right. But I don't think it's an inherently necessary thing. I think right. it's like a misuse of story structure. I know. If anything, you could almost feel when you're at a movie, when it does resolve that way, you don't feel the audience like, yay. You feel the audience almost like, oh. Yeah. It's like, because then it's over. Right. Right? And actually, <sighs> empathic identification is pleasurable, and we don't want it to be over which is why we want to binge watch 10 episodes in a row of Breaking Bad. Right. Right. And, right. and even if you take something that, that people think is non-narrative, you take a, a Twin Peaks, the Twin Peaks revival, and it's like, well, no, the story doesn't work exactly like they did before. And you might be sitting watching a guy sweeping for five right. minutes. <laughs> but you care. Is that Cooper? Is it not Cooper? Yeah. Is it, When is he going to find the thing? You know, and even if it's not going to resolve the whole story, at least you're in... And moment to moment, your cortisol levels are rising as you're wondering. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, and that's true in terms of like hero's journey and heroine's journey, too. Like, I think some of it actually just has to do with length and duration. Like, I think part of why we respond to these processes is because it actually is how human transformation works. I actually think that we have unresolved things and encounter things in the external world that we have to wrestle with. And in doing that, we transform and we grow, right? So story is also reminding us of our own ability to transform and our Mm. own evolutionary nature, right? Which our culture tells us that we just are who we are and that's what you get, right? (laughs) But like, actually, that's not true. And so I think that the heroine's journey model or in a certain way, the episodic television model where the transformation is repeated and iterative and ongoing is more like how life feels, right? Right. And when you're looking at a two-hour movie with a clean ending, that's just a little piece of it. 
Right. Right. It's not over at the end. And you get to go and learn that lesson again in another form. Right. And they felt for whatever reason, commercial reasons, they needed to ding the cash register at the end of the movie. Right. So everybody knows, yes, it's done. Yeah. We resolved it. You see, totally. we tied up all the loose ends. All of our, you know, IP, uh, IP landmines or, you know, whatever they're called, uh, uh, the the spoilers right. have been detonated. Right. You know? Right. Right. You get to go home now. It's, but it's interesting. I mean, you yeah. look at even huge, big-budget Hollywood storytelling now is becoming more episodic. Like, if you look at some of the Harry Potter movies, they don't—some of them don't have satisfying endings. They're actually just setting up the next one. Right. Like the second Star Wars movie. Yeah. You know, Battlestar, whatever that one. Yeah. Uh, Empire Strikes Back. I was like, wait, it's over? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Gotta wait a year. Totally. <laughs> to see the next one. But I had a guy on uh, uh, last year, a, a philosopher named George Monbiot. Uh-huh. I don't know if you heard of him. I have but heard of him, but I don't know that much about him. All about narrative. Uh-huh. All about narrative. So basically, he's arguing that 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 our problem as a society is that the, the narrative that we've been using till now it, it stopped working and we need a new one. Mm-hmm. But he says all narratives have the same shape, mm-hmm. that things were once great in some kind of an Eden perfect world, then these awful forces came and screwed everything mm. up and disrupted things and and reversed the what should be the happy natural order but now we have this new way that we can all come together and restore the order and then you know be happy again right like those are like civilizational narratives right right yeah. which trump had one yes you know if totally. hillary probably didn't you know yes. hillary's or was it incremental or, or certainly didn't key into my cortisol and and empathy. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, Hillary else. could have used some storytelling lessons. Yeah. That's a whole but other conversation. But Bernie did. Yes, he did. Absolutely. There was a story. And, and so people respond to it. And in some part of me, as I don't know what I am, as some kind of an intellectual or whatever, I feel, oh, gosh, is it really coming down to that, that, that we got to tell good stories in order for people to do the right things? I think so. (laughs) I actually really think so. I think that our relationship to narrative as human beings is very deep. Like I said, I think it's wired into us. And I think it is the lens through which we experience the world and through which we grow and change. And I think that on the left, there has been a bias against narrative for a really long time. And this sort of idea that like, we have the what's important are the facts, and we have the facts. Right. And if we can just present all of the facts objective in a, objectively yeah. in a scientific <laughs> narrative, and if everybody would just understand that, then they'll automatically see the world the same way we do. And that's BS, right? It's like that's and it's elitist, right? It's not that we have a set of self-evident facts that is objectively better, and other people just don't understand. It's actually that. We're engaged in a conversation about who we're going to be as humans and who we're going to be as a society and much deeper questions about how we relate to each other. And the way that we're built to understand those questions as human beings is through story. And the the right wing understands this, right? The advertising industry understands this. Right. They under, they've been building and working skillfully with narrative for decades on purpose. And their narrative is winning not because it's stronger, but because it's actually the only one out there. And I really well, believe that narrative is so pleasurable to us and we're so drawn to it that in the absence of a deeper, better narrative, 
we'll go to whatever narrative is available right, to us. Right, but if we, I guess my fear is that the true narrative may not be the most compelling narrative. Say more about that. Well, so they tell the story, let's make America great again. It was once fine when, you know, black people knew their place and women knew their place and men could do a little, you know, fraternity rape and it wasn't really such a big deal. Things were better, you know, (laughs) whatever. I mean, however, they're going to tell it in another way, of course. But, you know, America was great. We didn't have this whole multicultural thing to worry about. All the cultures that we beat knew that they had been beaten. and, and, And what made black people of that period fine was that they wanted to be like whites. At least they knew if they wanted to be part of our civilization, they got to become like us, learn our language, learn our jobs. And 30% of America likes that. Now, Mm -hmm. if I'm trying to tell the true story, it's not, America wasn't great. It really kind of sucked. And and maybe it was better for a few people or it was better because, I mean, uh, because FDR had the GI Bill and Americans got a piece of land and they got to go to college uh-huh. for free. And that was actually kind of communist. But we won't call it that because we don't want to upset anybody. And black people were still getting lynched right up through the 1960s. Sure. It's, it's, it's harder. I mean, I mean, my, my Team Human mm-hmm. is my 20th book. And it's my first nonfiction narrative. My other books are, are polemics. Mm-hmm. This one, I'm saying, just to tie team you, I'm saying, look, you've been taught that evolution is survival of the fittest between all these different things. Actually, it's a team sport. Mm-hmm. It's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our society, we come up with all these great inventions and institutions to help people collaborate and form better networks and team up together better. And they get corrupted and turned into... Uh, things that divide us. So mm-hmm. social media might have been invented to connect people, and now it atomizes us in all these different sure. ways. If we can remember and restore this idea of collaboration and team, we can work together, find the others, and, uh, uh, you know, humanity can be this organism that survives right. and, and thrives. So I'm trying. I'm going there. Yeah. I'm trying the story as the way. But I've got a lot of my colleagues are like, I can't believe you're how do you know the story is true? It's right. Like, well, well, there's right. There's a huge bias <laughs> against against story. I think it's like it's seen as it, there's a mistrust of story as like emotional or maybe even feminine. Oh my god. Right? Yeah. Like or right. not reliable. And I think, you know, I am interested in busting that open. I mean, in terms of what you're talking about about compelling narratives, like I think What's interesting is what you just described is like a meta narrative, right? It's like a societal narrative. Right. I'm interested in, so empathy, I think, works best on a smaller scale, right? And it works best on a human to human scale. And I, yes, there are people for whom that meta narrative that you described, the odious one, is so compelling that they are going to be deeply emotionally invested in it and probably are not going to be bendable. There are some people. I believe those people are really in the minority. And I believe that for people who are invested in that narrative because it's all they've been handed but might be able to be convincible, that the thing that is going to convince them is not sort of an Alt, another alternate huge abstract meta narrative, but an accumulation of multiple processes of identification with people. 
like on the human scale, on the more one-to-one scale or the small group face-to-face scale. Find other people in your neighborhood, engage with them, establish rapport. Yeah, or in a fictional or or documentary storytelling mode, I mean, we can actually bring people to those people and share their stories. There were lots of people in the audience for The Exonerated and certainly many who saw the film version of it on court TV from their living rooms who wouldn't go to a theater to see a play ever, right? Who would never in their lives come into contact with a death row exoneree or listen to their story, but who were transformable and transformed by the experience of hearing that story, right? So, I mean, I think... There's like a lot of narrative work that wants to happen on a smaller scale. And I think when you talk about politicians, like, I think it wants to start with their individual narrative. I mean, that's part of what, you know, people in the, I feel like people in the Democratic Party leadership have so missed why Obama was so extraordinary, right, and and, and did so well politically. Sure, it had something to do with his grassroots ground game, but it was also because he was a master storyteller. And mm. it wasn't just oh, he's charismatic and he's gifted and he's a great speaker. He was doing very specific narrative things. And he started with himself. He was able to make himself a protagonist and a site of empathic Mm -hmm. identification through using his life story with all kinds of different groups of people. And once he had onboarded them on the human face-to-face, one-to-one level, then he could go to the meta narrative about like, and here's what we could do with that. Right. The odd, the odd thing, though, is that Trump is doing that, too, or we're doing it for Trump. In other words, here's the story of this guy. Who cares how you start out thinking about him? Everybody's after him. Every, yeah. I mean, right. the Absolutely. Trump story is on TV every night. And eventually, if you if he's the protagonist, even if he's the antihero for the first year of it, eventually you start to identify. I identify with the idea that something from my past, some Gmail, some message or drug deal or something's sure. going to come back and they're going to say, look at this. You bought pot when you were 17 from another guy. Uh, or or whatever, uh, we all feel surveilled by Facebook. Absolutely. We all want the excuse of, well, that's fake news or there's a conspiracy. So in some sense, all of the attacks on him uh, uh, make him the protagonist of a story and backfire in terms of America's empathy uh, uh, generation. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, I think. And I think that's an under-discussed aspect of why he is in power. He understands show business. He had a TV show. He, he gets how to tell a story, disorganized as he is as a thinker. Like, he understands instinctively. He's a showman. Right. And he knows how to tell a story, and he knows how to make himself a protagonist. I mean, it was very interesting with all of these ideas in mind, interesting, upsetting, et cetera, to watch. I watched the Ford Kavanaugh yeah. hearing in its entirety, and I, I watched those Republican— senators on the Judiciary Committee, when he got up to speak, stoke and cultivate the audience's empathy with his sense of aggrievement intentionally in a way that they had not done with her. Mm. Right. They didn't rip her apart. They sat back and listened and they were ostensibly respectful. But they certainly were not getting up there and saying, I feel for you for having gone through this experience and what must it have felt like and let me put myself in your shoes and all Mm. that. And he got up in his aggrieved, rageful victim state and all of these guys fell all over themselves 
to cultivate an empathic identification with him. That was what was actually that was the most upsetting right. thing to me about watching that. Right. So right, this, they had the function of a laugh track. Yeah, essentially, totally. Yeah. Like uh, right, a, an empathic laugh track. Yeah. yeah. And I think that. So I think this narrative structure and our response to it clearly can be used for good purposes, and it can be used for destructive purposes. Like I don't think that narrative is inherently good or going to save us. I also think that it could destroy us, right? But I think that those of us who are interested in creating a sustainable human society and a just human society are being neglectful by not tapping into it as a tool. Yeah, it's it's just such a tricky moment for it, especially in the in a fractious media space like ours. I did yes. a chapter in this book, Present Shock, that that Steve Soderbergh loved this chapter. He started doing talks about it called Narrative Collapse, mm-hmm. arguing that whether it's the remote control or YouTube or moving back and forth, that 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 interactivity really uh, uh, undermines the storyteller's authority. Absolutely. Over a continuous narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really true. And then there are these multiple responses to it. I mean, there's the impatient sort of response of the uh, the, that kind of knee-jerk impatience of the Tea Party movement and Trump's people, like the terrible twos. Give me, give me now, now, now. I've got no. And then there's the other side, this sort of more on my side is, okay, no narrative. It's sort of this Occupy Wall Street. We have no goal. We're Uh It's a new state of being, Uh you know, this permanent present or something. Yeah. Um, but neither really works because right. one, you don't get into the state houses and make any change, right. which is the Occupy problem. And the other is you have this impatient, fake, angry, uh, well, what's what's happening? It's Right. So there's this other, I guess it's this other uh, understanding of almost kind of fact-based narrative or uh, I guess I, I don't look at your storytelling as manipulative Madison Avenue style narrative. Like, we want people to really care about prison inmates. So right. let's right. structure. But rather, it's kind of this emergent phenomenon that happens. Yeah. Now, is that because of the actors in the room or is it because of the script? I mean, I I would say that it is emergent because our process is emergent. I mean, when we wrote Exonerated, we were a couple of actors who had no idea how to write a play. And we just had this idea and we called everybody that we knew and asked them for help. Like we called journalist friends and asked how to do an interview and uh. nonprofit friends and asked how we could get in touch with these people and playwright friends and asked them how to write a play. Right. And then. Every We kept putting one foot in front of the other. And then once we had gone on the road and done the interviews and transcribed them, then, you know, we didn't know how to write a play. We knew how to be actors. So we had a space and we called all of our actor friends and we asked them to come in and read the transcripts out loud. And we edited by ear, bit by bit. And we would go home and like enter the edits into the computer and bring back with slightly condensed pages the next day. We did that over and over and over again until the form of the play actually monologues started to emerge. And then we did the same process, putting them together in a structure. And that was emergent also. And that is actually still how we create. So, I mean, I think we are mimicking nature in a certain way in our creative process, right? I mean, and and I, I mean, right. I actually think biomimicry there. Yeah. yeah, And that's what art making actually ultimately is. I think. And it's funny. I mean, and it's not, not to, to denigrate it, but it's not, 
it's almost, you didn't invent it even. I mean, I think back, it's like, well, the Me Nobody Knows. I don't know, it's an old Broadway mm -hmm. musical where they talked to all these kids and found their yeah. essays, you know, kids uh, in the projects. Right. And then they wrote this totally. musical around and there's it. there's people doing devised work. Even that, Chorus yeah. Line, you yeah, know? I mean, totally. some of those people, I think, sued later because this was their <laughs> right. They all get yes. doing fake auditions. And yes. then it's like, wait a minute, that's my story about yeah. coming out as a gay person is now in some other right. actor's mouth. Totally. <laughs> but the, the other thing that matters so much, uh, to me anyway, about your work is that it's, Getting human beings together in a space. Yes, absolutely. And the, the and it's, I mean, when I was a kid, because the world didn't seem so as dire, it was just magical to do it. Mm -hmm. It was just, wow, now I'm alive. Now I'm, you know, or as an adolescent, now I'm no longer sad. Now I, I found the others. I'm part mm -hmm. of something. But for us now, it feels like we're trying to, you know, which is the real purpose of Team Human, is trying to uh, 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 retrieve human empathy, human yeah. connection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's why I still work in the theater as difficult and weird of a business as it is to be in. I mean, I think, you know, I think mm. that theater could do a lot of really important cultural work if the, it's very complicated. It's how expensive it is, right? And there's there are access problems whenever you're dealing with the actual physical constraints of needing to get people into a physical space. I'd, and I'm not a theater administrator. I am not a visionary about how you overhaul the economics of the theater in order to make it accessible to everyone. I just know that that it would be really great if yeah. that could happen. It's another and reason I left. Is yeah. I saw the ticket prices of a play I was doing were $70. Yeah, no, so it's like, very real. None of my friends can come. That's one of the reasons why I work in film and television also is because right. film and television are both much more accessible because they have a different model. But they don't, I don't, I mean, and this is not, I love film and I love TV. And they don't do the same thing as being in the same room as, yeah. that, as the performers themselves. I mean, even the experience of watching a movie in a theater with other people, that's better than watching it alone on your couch, right? right? But, but it's still, it's not the same as being in the room with the performers. Right. And you go, I mean, I'll tell you. Go to a high school play even. Go to your community theater. Totally. It's still happening. Even yeah. whatever you see, see the Little Mermaid from the fifth grade play, there's still something going on in that room. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just the difference when you see the kid out in the wings from when they come on. Yeah, You know, totally. it's that there's, it's, it's, it's so special. It's just, it's indescribably special is yeah. the thing. People listen to a show like this or they hear you on NPR or see you you're written about in the Times. I mean, I just love what the, the review of Aftermath when he says, how can you turn away? Mm. I was like, that's the greatest compliment they could have made Absolutely. to you in particular. Because that's <laughs> your whole point. It's yeah. like, right, you're empathizing. You're in it with right. them. Listen. Right. It's listen and watch. Yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. I mean, I think and I think that's, you know, we saw that in again on Thursday with the Kavanaugh Ford hearings, or it was Friday actually, when the the um, activists cornered Flake in, in the, the elevator, elevator. Right? I mean, I don't know for sure, but watching that video, it certainly looked to me like at the beginning of that conversation, he had not made up his mind. Right. He did not had not had the idea of doing what he was going to do, and those women did it. They cornered him. They told him their stories from their hearts and the second woman kept saying over and over again look at me look me in the eye like he was trying not to look at her and as soon as he finally 
took her exhortation to look him in the eye, you could see he shifted. Right. Right? I mean, I think that was such a powerful example of the power of storytelling and human contact to actually change people. Once you make the eye contact, then now there's 500,000 years of evolution that's been activated in his body. And he can't fight that. And it just happens. It just happens. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we need to be doing everything we can to figure out how to harness and utilize that to build a better and more just and sustainable world. Because it's right here. It's like we're wired for it. We are we are wired to empathize with each other and to relate to each other. And we have certainly created a lot of technology that helps us check out of that. But we're still made the way we're made, right? Mm-hmm. Like the technology has not taken over <laughs> yet, and I hope it right. never does, right? And so in the meantime, I think we need we really need to be working with that intentionally. I mean, thanks so much for what you for what you do, and you're doing it on, on a whole bunch of different levels at once. Awesome! You know, well, thank you. So, people who want to find out about your work should go to what JessicaBlank.com. JessicaCBlank.com. Oh. JessicaBlank.com is a graphic designer. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure people, she's great. Yeah, but. she's wonderful. But <laughs> people are like, why do you have like Disney cartoon characters on your website? That's weird. JessicaCBlank.com. Great. And it's, Instagram is the same thing, JessicaCBlank, and I have a lot of stuff up there too. Great. Well, thank you for being on Team Human. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was playwright and storyteller Jessica Blank. And yes, you can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.